unless they're successful at moving people in their direction, they go away. They're gone. They're not viable economically. I'm going to give you the smallest thing you can do to have the biggest impact on harnessing the principle of authority to get yes. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an exciting, special guest for you today. Today's guest is one of the world's leading thought leaders in the subject of influence and persuasion. He also happens to be one of my favorite thought leaders when it comes to actually taking the time to delve into a subject and really mine it and develop it and turn it into powerful thought leadership. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Dr. Robert Cialdini. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cialdini. Thank you, Nikki. I'm very glad to be with you and your audience. Well, I'm very glad that you're here with us as well. So, Dr. Cialdini, let me tell you a little bit about who our audience is composed of and why they listen to the show before we get into the subject matter of what we're going to talk about. They tend to be entrepreneurs. They tend to be people that I call society's greatest heroes simply because they're the ones who've got the courage uh, to go out there and take an idea, take a dream, and do their darndest to turn it into a reality. And by doing that, they not only do good things for themselves, but for employees, for vendors, for clients. Honestly, I think they're the ones who make the world a better place. And they listen to this show because, let's face it, things are a little crazy in the world these days. I'm sure you would agree. And yeah. they're, look, they're looking for a little bit of inspiration. They're looking for a little bit of encouragement. They're looking for somebody to tell them, hey, you matter and uh, you still can win. So that's why they listen to the show. But they don't listen to it because of me, because they hear me every week. They're coming to learn from you. And a lot of them will know who you are, but not all of them will know who you are. So why don't you start by telling us your backstory? How'd you get to be the great Dr. Robert Cialdini? Well, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a researcher and I'm an academic. I'm a scholar uh, by training. But I recognized that that wasn't enough uh, to just live in the world of um, artificial... Uh, artificially constructed experimental studies on human behavior um, and speaking just to the individuals in the academic community about what I learned on the research I did, that it was important, it seemed to me, to speak to the larger community about my topic, which is persuasion and social influence because everybody's interested in persuasion everybody wants to be either more persuasive uh in their own lives or to recognize how to defend or deflect 
unwanted persuasive efforts. So, so persuasion is very central to a lot of people and their their hopes and successes. And uh, it seemed to me that it was important to speak to them about the process of persuasion, how it worked, and how they could implement it to have better outcomes. Because in any meaningful way, they've paid for that research with their tax dollars or their contributions to universities. The non-academic community has funded the research that talks about human behavior. They're entitled to know what we found with their money, right? They're entitled to that. And it gives a chance for a greater reach of this knowledge. I'm I'm a, I'm a teacher too at a university. So as a teacher, it's something you want to you don't want to you don't want to be possessive about the information about the knowledge. You want to spread it. You want it to do, be distributed among the the people who are interested in it. So. For all of those reasons, I decided uh, that I needed to do something that differentiated myself <laughs> from the uh, standard academic working on human behavior in laboratories and publishing in scientific journals and outlets that nobody reads except uh, other scientists. Uh, and... Uh, that's probably the best way I can explain who I am now compared to who I was in terms of thought leadership. You have to differentiate yourself from the herd, from what most people are doing in a standard and conventional way. And then you get the chance to be seen as someone who's leading on that topic or in a new direction on that topic. That's pretty brilliant. And, you know, a couple of the folks who have mentored me and whose work I've followed are a fellow out of Australia by the name of Matt Church and um, uh, an American writer by the name of David Nearman Scott. And Matt Church created the Thought Leaders Global uh, movement and institute out of Australia. And then he also created a commercial arm for it called Thought Leaders Business School. And David Meerman Scott has been a high-level advisor to a lot of corporations, including um, Robbins Research International, Tony Robbins's company. And I actually got to meet him because my, uh, uh, my partner in life, my lovely better half, she works for Tony Robbins. And she uh, brought me to an event where I got to meet him. And both of these guys have a really awesome definition of thought leadership that ties in very nicely with what you just shared. So Matt says, a thought leader and an expert are very different. An expert is someone who knows something, right? They could be really good at what they know, but experts are a dime a dozen. But a thought leader is someone who not only knows something, but is known for knowing something. And that's what makes a thought leader rare and valuable. And I thought that was pretty brilliant. And then David Meerman Scott put it even more elegantly, I thought. And he said, well, an expert's like a cover band while a thought leader plays original music. And I'm wondering what your yeah. thoughts are on this. 
No, I especially resonate uh, to that last one where the originality of it. You you have to different. You have to separate yourself in order to be seen as someone who's at the forefront. To be uh, th- those those ideas, those thoughts are the ones that are at the vanguard, and it's not just that you're safe inside the the bubble of uh, of conventionality so um i'll tell you what i what i did nikki um at about uh mid career i decided that if i really wanted to know what were the powerful factors and practices and techniques that led to persuasion successful persuasion i needed to get into the to the natural environment where people's success is dependent on effective persuasion people whose business it is to persuade us right whose economic livelihood depends on the effectiveness of what they do it's it's the the private sector commercial Salespeople, marketers, advertisers, uh, recruiters, uh, public relations specialists, uh, charity uh, solicitors, unless they're successful at moving people in their direction, they go away. They're gone. They're not viable economically. So what have they found out that works well enough to turn a profit for them every year that they do this. And I thought, well, how am I going to get access to that information? Because they don't, they don't, it's proprietary. They don't want to share it with some guy who's <laughs> going to write a book about them and their techniques and give their rivals and the, you know all their uh, information. How do I get them? And it occurred to me there was one place where they freely gave the information about what works best to move people in their direction. It was in their training programs. When they were trying to bring people up to the level of uh, a functioning and profit-making member of their team, Right. had to tell them what was most successful in their training programs. So I, undercover, applied to the training programs of as many influence professions as I could get access to. I learned how to sell automobiles. I learned how to sell insurance. I learned how to sell nutrition supplements door to door i learned uh i didn't stop there i learned what the advertisers do i learned what charity organizations do to get contributions and um and it was interesting um that in every one of those domains of of those industries they would say you know we're not the same as the others we're we're different like 
marketers would say would say marketing is not the same as sales and advertisers would say advertising is not the same as marketing and public relations people would say public relations isn't the same as advertising right and uh charity solicitors would say well charity solicitation is different it's not the same as those other and they were all right there were diff there were differences between the various kinds of approaches that you had to take in order to be successful in each of those industries. But because they were focused on the differences, they were missing a very important question. What's the same? What works in all of them? What has risen to the top as a as a principle of persuasion or influence, as a, a strategy that works across situations, settings, populations, industries. So when I got into the training programs of these, I looked not just at, oh, how marketing isn't the same as sales. I looked how they were the same. <laughs> what were the principles that worked for both of them and also worked for charity solicitors and also worked for for uh negotiators and also worked you know what was common to the influence process in the professions whose business it is to get others to say yes to them and what i found surprised me at how small the footprint was of the principles that were in common across all of these settings. Why did it surprise you? Because there were hundreds of individual tactics and practices and procedures. It turns out that you could categorize them in terms of just seven universal principles that those tactics harnessed to be successful. And wow, I thought, you know, this is worthy of a book. <laughs> People would be interested to know what are the universals of the influence process that work wherever you need to be successful in moving people in your direction. So I did write this book, Influence, and uh, Nikki, I have to say, it's been good to me. It's been, <laughs> it's been good to me. Um, uh, it's sold more copies than I could have sensibly imagined when I first wrote it. And in a lot of different languages, which suggests that it, these principles work across cultures, not just here in, in the U.S. In fact, I have a colleague, a, a Polish colleague, uh, Professor Wilhelmina Wosinska, who wrote to me uh, and said, you know, Robert, your book influence is so famous in poland my students think you're dead <laughs> wow and i thought wow well that's a sobering uh, commentary uh, but an affirming one at the same time so i thought i better if people think i'm dead it's time for me to write a new version of the book <laughs> and and uh, i've added the seventh principle as well and uh so uh 
so that was the, the the place that got me into what I would, I think you would call uh, thought leadership. That that book, that where people could go and find out what worked on the basis of scholarship, on the basis of the application of that scholarship to real world situations. It's not just the theories, but you have to apply those theories to show that they work for the people who use them. And finally, the ethics of it. Those applications have to be done ethically so that you feel good about yourself in the process of being successful. When I first read your book, I was absolutely startled by the six principles that you outlined in the book because intuitively i knew and had experience with each principle but i had never before seen all of them codified in that fashion and what was incredible for me was the second time i read your book i just started a um a company, a, a workshop and a seminar company with a with a business partner, and his job was to basically make sure everything worked. You know, put the websites and all that stuff together and get and, and, and get all that to go. And of course, we'd also sit together and plan and come up with our messaging and whatnot. My job was to get people to come check us out. <laughs> that was my job. So I was in charge of persuasion. So I thought, you know what, let me read Influence again. Probably a good idea uh, at this stage. And I'm kind of in a similar place right now with some new stuff that I'm doing. And I remember that I read your book. I, I sat down at a desk. I took detailed notes. I highlighted passages. And I thought about how can I apply this in the conversations that I'm going to have over the next few days. So here was what was absolutely incredible was that in literally a 90-day period, I generated five times as much sales as I ever had before in my life, just from taking the principles and starting to apply them in how I communicated with people, how I had sales meetings. It wasn't that I was using any special magic or tactics. Right. But this was so elegant, so well done, so, as you said, universal, that for me, I'm very grateful to you. I've I've always wanted to meet you. So one of the little secrets of doing a podcast like this is I get to meet some of the people I've always wanted to meet. Hey, I got a podcast. Would you like to come on? So it's a really great way to do that. But I want to say this isn't just thought leadership. This is some of the, the most elegant and effective ways to do thought leadership that I've ever seen. So kudos. Well, I, I'm gratified that that's the case. Um, glad to have the chance to spend some time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. So, so Dr. Cialdini, we talk about differentiating yourself and coming up with original thought. Those are two of the things we've talked about so far. But you you touched on this, but I'd like you to just delve into it more deeply if you could. Thought leadership isn't really thought leadership if it's not useful to an audience of people that have a problem that's vexing them and that they care deeply about solving. 
you understood this, at least intuitively, when you went about this process. So could you talk about why that's important and how you applied it in creating your work? Yeah, so, uh, you know, what I mentioned before was uh, what I consider the three pillars of our brand. One is it's based on scientific research. The applications have to be ethical and the applications have to be successful. You, you, you have to give people a reason to move in your direction. Otherwise, why would they spend time just cogitating about your ideas? That's sort of a good life, it seems to me, that if you're, you're, you're doing something that's based on proven uh, research, it's ethical, so you feel good about yourself in the process of being successful, and you learn specifically how to be successful by changing the persuasive approach that you use. And often, it doesn't require more than just one word or one change of a sequence of words that makes the very same case more effectively because people resonate to the way it's structured this way as opposed to that way. Yeah, yeah I think that's very powerful and very important because to me, one of the things that differentiates your work from uh, some of the folks that are pure academic researchers is you've taken the time to make sure that it is useful to a group of people. And not everybody who's in the thinking professions, as it were, <laughs> professors at universities or think tanks or so forth, really takes the time to do that. And if there's anything that I think you can teach those folks about their work is you got to make sure that this is of interest to more than just you and a few of your colleagues. That is such an important insight uh, that to have it have a positive um, impact on the world, you have to arrange for people who employ your ideas to have a positive impact on the world. There has to be a change as a result of what you've said or done. Otherwise, it, you're just reinforcing the old ideas that they've had, unless you're giving them something new that they haven't tried before or haven't thought about in the term, in the way that you've conceptualized it. What what are you adding? What value are you adding? You know, to the to the mix. Very little. Very little. Yes. And there's another point I wanted to delve into with you for a moment, and this is. The concept of thought leadership versus thought followership, like originality and ingenuity versus folks who are really all they're, they're doing is copying someone's ideas without maybe even giving them credit. And would you mind delving into that for a few moments? No, that's very important, I think, to, um, once again, as we said, to give the people who are audience to your ideas something original, something new, something they didn't have, as opposed to people who are uh, drawing the insight or an inspiration from your ideas and representing it as their own. Uh, you know, we we deal with that. We have to deal with that. Uh, I don't like, uh, you know, attacking those people, but what usually happens is 
in the if if they're online or so on, um, the comments will say, "Hey, where do you get <laughs> off saying that this is your idea? It's not your idea. It comes from X or Y or Cialdini. <laughs> it comes from somebody else." And and you you have to. It seems to me. Um, penalize those folks so that they don't get away with it. They don't get away with being false thought leaders and are just thought followers. You have to call them on what they've tried to do. Uh, I don't mind people using my ideas and talking about them as long as they represent where the idea came from in the first place, right? Then I, that's fine. I that's I feel good about that as a teacher. That's the sort of thing you want to you want to sure. spread the word. But but uh, people who are like petty thieves <laughs> in in the process that does uh, aggravate me. To be sure, I I think that that's that's more than a valid point. It's it's important to make sure that you don't allow for the theft of intellectual property or any property. Right now, it seems to be that around the world there's a. Uh, uh, an entitlement mentality that is out there for a lot of folks that seem to want to have things without earning them. And and I think uh, history has shown that that doesn't work in the long run. If you look at every major society in the history of the world, you look at the Roman Empire, you you, you look at uh, the Greeks, you look at the Persian Empire, I'm originally Iranian. Uh, so that's, that's kind of my background. Um, all of these folks had a period of ascendance and they had a period of decline. And the decline started to happen when folks who hadn't really earned the right to, to rule, to be successful, started to take over positions of power and authority. And I think that's the same when you engage in thought followership. But I want to add one more uh, um, thought to this. And I'd like to get your comments on that. I think thought followership without um, giving credit to somebody isn't just wrong and should be penalized i actually think it weakens the individual engaging in it because they become intellectually lazy they're not working the muscles of creating their own thoughts and so over time they're not going to be somebody who can come up with stuff that's valuable and going to serve them their legacy in the world and i'm wondering if you could address that for us for a moment that's really interesting to to think about because it seems to me you're saying what's the platform somebody like that goes to first to make a contribution it's not their own thoughts and and perceptions and insights it's somebody else's thoughts and insights you it's a very easy way to proceed to the next step you know, but it it's intellectually inferior to the one that involves the thought process, the generative process of coming up with an idea from your own worldview and and insights and recognitions of what just went on around you. You know, then you see that and build something from it. It's you say you you build your mu your intellectual musculature in the process, which makes it a lot easier to do it the next time because you know how to get there and you've you've got the strength to do it. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's very important. So let's come to everybody's favorite part about thought leadership, which is how do we make some money from it? How do we turn it into some commercial success? So you're somebody who's successfully done that. I'd love to hear some of your insights and thoughts about how you do what you do in a way that's actually remunerative. So um, one way for me, the thing that started it all off was to write a, a popular book. Uh, at the time that I wrote Influence, there were no uh, behavioral scientists who were writing for the larger uh, community. Um, and uh, I, as I said, I thought we owed it to the larger community to give them the information that we had acquired about how humans function right? in return for uh, their funding of it. Uh, and so in doing that, it increased the reach of the ideas. Um, and so that was the first thing. Just you, you have to write or speak in some forum that allows other people to recognize what you've done and benefit from it. Right? Well, if they want to benefit from it, they will pay the amount of a book or a subscription to a, um, a podcast or um, to read your uh, articles in uh, newspapers and so on. Uh, they they will they'll follow you. They'll be willing to do that. But you have to find a platform that you're good at. Right. And I I became aware that I was a pretty good writer for the popular reader, not just for my academic colleagues. Um, and so that's where I went. But I see a lot of people doing things like podcasts and webinars and um, uh, speeches from in conferences and so on, where they deliver their message provided that it offers benefit to the audience members the audience will pay for it they'll you know there's ben franklin he said to persuade speak not to argument speak to self-interest mm. speak to your audience's self-interest and they will be moved to come in your direction and that includes compensating you for that benefit that will allow them to be compensated in their uh, environments there there has to be a self-interest component to it that you honestly feed and genuinely enhance Yeah, I, I I wholeheartedly agree. You know, the work that you've done is so good that um, I think the opportunity for monetization is fantastic um, for you. I mean, you've written books, you've got your, your institute and programs, and I'm sure that you do speeches and so forth. And uh, I'm sure you've done some consulting for some organizations who've asked you to come in and help them design this sort of thing for them. And that's 
the beauty of really good thought leadership is that it gives you the opportunity to um, monetize your ideas in a very powerful way. Matt Church uh, of Thought Leaders Global talks about you got to think things through once and then you can sell them and monetize them often because he 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 likes to talk about the fact that powerful thought leadership can be turned into books, can be turned into paid speaking engagements, can be turned into training programs that get sold to corporations on a per individual basis, can be turned into masterminds and peer groups like uh, sales VPs at organizations could be in the Cialdini mastermind group that, that they are coming to from all over the world and can also be turned into one-on-one coaching and mentoring. These are all things that um, I think really allow a thought leader to benefit from uh, the beautiful thoughts and solutions they've provided to the world. And it, it sounds like you're in agreement with that and you've obviously done that for yourself. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I'd, and, and I, unashamedly, it seems to me that um, it's a good exchange. If I'm providing beneficial information, it's not uh, it's not an exploitative for people to pay to benefit <laughs> from it. It doesn't exploit anybody. It's just a, it's a it's an exchange of uh, of benefits. Yeah, so. I'm altogether uh, behind that. <laughs> well, we're good capitalists here on this show, so it's good to see that you you see things in that fashion as well. So tell us, Dr. Cialdini, a little bit about the new version of influence and the, the seventh uh, principle of influence that you've come up with. I'm very interested in uh, hearing yeah. more about that. So, uh, so. So the new version of influence adds 120 pages of new research and uh, ideas and tactics, practices, procedures pra- that that work to move people in our direction. Uh, and one chunk of that is the, a, a new principle that I call unity. It's not too new to human nature, but it's new to the to the the book influence because I thought. It was undergirding uh, all of the other six principles that if you had the idea of unity, that is seeing a communicator as one of you, not just like you, but of you and your important social and personal groups that you use to define your identity. If that person is of you, all kinds of all kinds of uh, barriers to influence come down. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, uh, so one is a research example. I always have to start with, okay, what's the scientific evidence <laughs> that this works? Uh, a study done by some researchers on a college campus. They took a young woman who was about um, college age dress the way a student would, a college student would, and put her on a heavily trafficked part of the campus in front of a table for the United Way. And as students walked by, she asked them to contribute to the United Way. And because she was similar looking to them, 
she was getting some response because people like those who are like them and are more willing to to help uh, under those circumstances. But if she added one sentence before her request to donate to the United Way, she increased contributions by 450%. Wow. So what was the question? What was the sentence? I'm a student here too. Mm. I'm one of you. And it's very hard to say no to people who are of us, who are in our we groups. Mm. And those groups can be communities, they can be uh, organizations, they can be religions, they can be ethnic groups, they can even be sports groups. But the ones that make you think, oh, that Nikki isn't just like us. Nikki is one of us. That changes everything. Right? Now, here's an example. Um, <clears throat> a while ago, I was writing a grant proposal for uh, getting funded for some, a big research project I had. And it was due the next day, had to be sent in the next day. Um, and I was reading it over one last time, and I saw one section of it that was inadequate. I just didn't have the evidence to make the to draw the conclusions that I wanted from that section. But I knew that I had a colleague, let's call him Tim, right? Not his real name, Tim, who had done some research the previous year, and he did get the results that I needed to put into this section before I sent it off. Uh, so I sent him an email and I said, Tim, and I explained what had happened. I, I'm writing this grant proposal. I need to send it off tomorrow. There's a section that is that is not uh, compelling, but it would be if it had access to the, the research that you did last year. I know it, the, it's in your, your archives. You've, you've got it. And I'm going to call you to talk about how we could cooperate to get me that those data, uh, and and I can import them in, into this uh, proposal in time to send it off. So I sent him the email, and then I called him. Now Tim was known among my colleagues as not a nice man. He, you, you know, we all have co-workers, grouchy, grumpy, sour, doesn't suffer fools gladly kind of guy. And uh, so he picked up the phone. He said, hello, Bob. I know why you're calling. And the answer is no. The answer is no. I'm sorry. You're, you need this done tomorrow? Well, I can't be responsible for your poor time management skills, Bob. <laughs> the answer the answer is no, I'm a busy man. And before I read the research on unity, I would have said, come on, Tim, I really need this. I've got this deadline for tomorrow. He had already said no to that. Right. So here's what I said. Tim, we've been members of the same psychology department now. For 12 years, I really need this. 
And I had the data that afternoon. Whoa. I reminded him that we were members of the same identity. We had the same members of the same psychology department for 12 years. We shared an identity. Wow. Okay. So you have to bring them to consciousness, to top of mind, before you make the request. Like that student did. I'm a student here too, like you. Right before she made the request. And she brought unity to consciousness. Now, I'm going to give you one more <laughs> example of how this works. Of how, because what you were saying earlier about not just knowing this, but having applications of it, imp ways to, to actually implement it, right? Yes. That's the key. Well, I can explain it in one of two ways. Um, Mar in marketing or uh, or in uh, organizational behavior. Let's take marketing, for example. Uh, in my view, the single most um, important advance in marketing research and implementation of the last two decades is co-creation, where you invite your audience, your subscribers, your community, your you know, uh, uh, buyers, purchasers, whatever you have, right, to co-create the next generation of your products or services, right? where you ask them to tell you what they would like to see more of, what they would like to see less of, what ideas would make them even more committed to you and your brand and, and so on. And you you ask them for that. And then you incorporate the best of those ideas into the next uh, product uh, development or release or the next launch of a new um, program, right? The research shows not only does that significantly increase favorability toward your brand if people have been part of the co-creation process it significantly increases their loyalty to your brand they don't go elsewhere right? okay so co-creation now how does and that's a unity that's a unity strategy you are making them partners you are engaging in a weeness exercise in which you are working together as collaborators on a project right or right okay now there's a new piece of research it's not even a single piece of research there are two studies now on this that show the way to amplify the effect of the co-creation experience through greater unity when you ask for input from your community, right, on you know the, uh, your, your existing customer base or whatever it is, right, to co-create, what we typically say is, could you provide us 
your feedback or your opinion on what direction we should take. Right? That's a mistake. It's not a mistake to ask for the input. It's a mistake to ask for someone's opinion or feedback. Because when you do, let's just take opinion. When you ask for somebody's opinion, you get a critic. Mm -hmm. Somebody who steps back from you and goes inside themselves. They're no longer partnering with you. They're stepping away from you and evaluating you. They're critiquing you as a separate entity. Right? Okay. If you change one word, and instead of asking for their opinion, you ask for their advice, you don't get a critic anymore, you get a partner. You get unity. You get a collaborator, a cooperator on that project, on that idea, on this attempt this undertaking to improve, right? And here's what the research says. If you ask for advice rather than opinion, you get significantly better um, evaluations of your brand and, and new project, and you get significantly better input from them. They give you better recommendations. They're more motivated because they're part of the the process now. They're your partner. You've unitized them with one word. There's there's a uh, a quote that's attributed to the novelist uh, Saul Bellow. Um, yes, he says. When we ask for advice, we're usually looking for an accomplice. <laughs> I like it. Well, if we do get that advice, we do get that accomplice. The advice, the, pro the, the concept of providing advice unifies us with our base. Okay, so those are the kinds of things I talk about in this new section on uh, unity. And uh, so, yeah, that's a way to respond to what you were asking about. Well, what's this new, what's this new uh, book about, the new version of influence? Well, it's partially about this new principle, but there's also 120 pages of a of new research into the other six principles <laughs> that uh, you know made people in it was that that's been very good to me. You know, Dr. Cialdini, as I'm listening to you do this, I'm listening for myself because um, I I run a couple of groups, but one of the groups I run is a men's organization. Um, many years ago, um, uh, I was married at the time and my then wife seemingly out of the blue decided she didn't want to be married to me anymore. And I was completely blindsided. I, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was. And, um, 
through the grace of some friends of mine, I was introduced to a, a men's group and then another, and uh, I got deeply into the work, and I've I've been involved in it ever since. And two years ago, me and a, a man who I'd known from another group I was a part of decided to start our own group, and. We feel that there's a lot of men these days that are feeling a little bit lost, unsure of how to be a man in 2023, unsure of how to raise families, be honorable, and all that good stuff. And we've put a lot of time, a lot of effort into creating something that'll be of service to these men, really, really help them, help them iron sharpening iron, as it were. And what you just shared with me about unity and advice I'm going to take that on. I'm going to take this to our high council, which is like a board of directors. And I'm going to say, look, I want your advice. <laughs> what should we do here? Get some accomplices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also we want to, I'm going to do it with our entire membership and say, Hey, we want your advice. How do we make this? Absolutely. And the first piece of research was done on advice versus opinion and showed the results of it. There's been a second piece of research that shows the same effect, the superiority of asking for advice rather than feedback or give me your expectations of what will happen with this new project. Neither of those work as well as uh, advice either because they're, they separate. They cause people to take a half step back from you psychologically, whereas ask. Asking for somebody's advice causes them to take a half step towards you psychologically. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. Honestly, this is this is groundbreaking, brilliant stuff. And the other part of me that put that listened to this was listening as you know, an advisor to thought leaders going, Oh my god, this is the best stuff I've heard in 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 persuasion and influence ever. And I'm thinking, wow, this can be seriously monetized. I'm thinking this this approach can be monetized to the tune. You could be the first billion dollar thought leader with this. You know that's well. You know, here's what we are we're developing a new a new business called the Cialdini Institute. Yes. Where this is what we're trying to do with something that I think you've recognized here, and that is, you know that use the word um, uh, advice rather than opinion or something. It's what we're calling a small big. And yeah. this program, this learning program of becoming more successful is based on the smallest changes you can make that will produce the largest impact on your persuasive success. I, I do do platform presentations at conferences and so on. And I learned that if I ever say to an audience, now, you know this principle of influence that we've just been talking about, let's say it's the principle of authority. I'm going to give you the smallest thing you can do to have the biggest impact on harnessing the principle of authority to get yes. The room falls silent. Hands <laughs> poised ab above pads, you know, uh, fingers above computer keys. And I get the audience attention 
almost as completely as if I had mentioned sex. <laughs> why? ROI is why. Return on investment is a. If I can give you one word to change from the, your standard word and significantly increase the extent to which people feel unitized with you and want to uh, be loyal to your brand, people want to know that. People want to know that, right? So we're, we're developing this uh, institute where we've got an online, on-demand learning program that is focused on the seven principles of influence and the small and in each one there are several small bigs that you can employ um to do it well i think the cialdini institute is a brilliant idea and um you know in my mind in addition to that i thought if you ever decided to um license your material to some consultants around the world to de deliver inside corporations. Um, there's That's one of the things that I learned from Matt Church. He's really big on developing thought leadership and licensing it because there's places you're never going to get to, never going to want to get to. And there's consultants there who'd love to take your, your advice. And he talked about a model from that. Right, I thought right. that could be like, I think that could be a hundred million dollar a year business by itself. Yeah. And the other thing that I think could be very valuable, you're, you're Dr. Robert Cialdini. When it comes to influence, you're the man. Let's let's be honest, right? If there was a um, a periodic mastermind that met at really nice places with really nice retreats, really high-level people who'd pay a lot of money to be a part of something like that, they might be interested in meeting you three times a year and having a two-day lesson and you know, yeah, yeah. No, you're. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. And, and so this new project is we're launching in mid uh, June, and so we'll have to see what develops. But I think those ideas are uh, one hundred percent practical. They really are, in my opinion. And uh, you know, I, if you ever want to talk about them offline, I'd be happy to talk to you about them because that's that's okay. fun stuff. And what what you do is really good. I want to be one of your first customers when you launch. So please have your people let me know that it's coming and let's uh, let's get into it. It's it's really timely for me because I am going to be delving into your material in a big way in the next uh, couple of months, given that I've got a few things that I've got uh, uh, in launch mode myself. And um, the most important thing for me right now is I want to help business owners, thought leaders right now, succeed and thrive in this recessionary time because there's a lot of people that are just frightened 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 by the times we're in and i think it's important to have brilliant thought leaders like you come on the show and show them how they can still be successful by implementing powerful persuasion techniques and it's also important to me that um you know, you spoke about ethics, and it's one of the things that I really like about the work that you do is that you're so concerned that it's being used in a way to benefit humanity, and I think that's very important. So, and not to be deceptive at all in the use of at it, all. but simply point to the to something that's truly that you really do have authority, or you're, there really is scarcity that has to be uh, addressed here in the situation. You better move now, or it'll be gone. If you if it's true, then you're just point. You just 
pointing to it. You're not fabricating it or counterfeiting it or exaggerating it. So all of that, I can't tell you, Nikki, I can't tell you how many times when I have done a platform talk, uh, somebody comes up to me and, and says, more than one person usually, and says, you know, uh, thank you for the focus on ethics because I don't want to have to feel like a worm in order to be successful. Yeah. I want you to show me the ways to use these principles that are entirely ethically commendable, not just ethically acceptable. They're commendable because you're informing people, you're educating people into assent. You're not tricking them or coercing them in. That's the key is you you got to be clean about this so that everything feels right uh, in the process of being successful. You know, I had a conversation with an individual um, today, as a matter of fact, and he approached me because I, I've published a few books. I've self-published a few books, and he had me on his podcast and said, look, would you mentor me in writing a book? And, um, you know, he was prepared to pay me. And I, I I sat down and I had a conversation with him, and he he was ready to write a check. And, you know, checks are always good. We can always use money. And, you know, at this point in time, I, I, I'm going to tell you flat out, um, getting new business in is good because uh, we got some folks that just have been hurt by the recession. They're not paying as fast as we'd like them to. So, All right, you right, know, of course. Yeah. So, but it was the wrong thing for this fellow to write the book. And I, and after the conversation with him, I told him, if you're, Asking me how to write the book, here's what we need to do, here's what it would cost. But if you're asking me whether I think you should write the book as a as a business professional, as an advisor to small business owners, my answer is no, you shouldn't write this book and you shouldn't invest this money. He was taken aback. He said, why not? And I told him why not. Bottom line is he, he had other things he needed to do before his book would be of any value to him. And he was going to spend a lot of time and money doing something mm. that was going to get him maybe even a negative ROI, not even a zero ROI, <laughs> Dr. Right. Cialdini, right? So at the end of the call, when I said, no, I don't want to take your money, he he said, okay. He said, I want to tell you something. I said, what's that? He said, I want to tell you that I really appreciate that you didn't just try to make a sale happen here today, that you really were honestly trying to make sure that my best interests were served. And I really appreciate that. And I got to tell you, there was a satisfaction in my soul to hear those words from this young man today. And you know, uh, you you deserve that. Here's something else that's a that's a, a downstream consequence of that. Your estimation in his eyes had he's going to talk about you. He's going to be an advocate for you. And if he ever has another idea where it does make a sense, right, he's going to come to you. And if you say, yes, this is the way to go, he's not going to doubt it. He's going, you've, you've shown him your credibility. You've shown him your trustworthiness. And now everything that he says to other people and everything that he interacts with you on in the future is going to be based on a perception of you as a credible source of information. He's going to believe it now. I really appreciate you saying that. 
I, I think I needed to hear that very much today. Um, <laughs> and yeah. in my men's group, you know, and, and then we, we ought to, we ought to start to wrap up. Uh, we, we, um, we see that there was a time where a man's word was his bond. Like, you know, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, up until the 60s, when a man said, I will do X, X would get done. There was no question about it. And if he wouldn't do that, he'd get a really bad reputation among, you know, his fellow right. men. That they, right. They'd say, oh, that, that fellow, he's not a real man. You can't cut on his word. Right. And today that's all gone. It's almost... Uh, uh, it's a, it's a rarity to find a man whose word is that solid. And one of the things that we're attempting to teach the men inside of our community is that the most important quality for you as a man is for you to have integrity, honor, and a moral compass. And it all starts with your word has to be unmessable with. And right. th there's so many people that give their word Dr. Cialdini, and then something better comes along and they go, you know what? I know I said I was going to do this, but now I'm going to do this instead because this is better for me and more fun. And it it drives me up the wall. And we've spent on, on my men's podcast, we've spent a lot of time talking about the importance of keeping your word and not taking it back. And we say to these men, listen, when should you keep your word? And they all say, oh, well, always. I go, yeah, 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 that's nice. Sure, always. But really, when should you keep your word? And they don't have a good answer. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you when you should keep your word. When it's inconvenient, difficult, someone gave you a better offer for money, sex, or time off, and you really would much rather do any of those things, <laughs> that's when it's important to keep your word. And I read a book earlier this year called The Gambler, which is the life story of Kirk Kerkorian by a journalist for the Los Angeles Times named William Rempel. And he talked about Kirk Kerkorian's reputation for keeping his word. And he had made a deal to sell um, MGM to a, a company. And then not 24 hours later, another company came with a 50% higher offer, better terms, everything. And his president wanted to jump on the offer, called him and said, Kirk, listen, uh, I know we made this deal yesterday, but here's this new deal, blah, blah, blah. Kirk just said, I only have one question. He said, what's that? Did you give those fellows yesterday your word that we were going to do the deal? And he goes, yeah, but. He said, there is no yeah, but. Why are you calling me? <laughs> on the bottom. Man. <laughs> there is no but. There's no yeah, but. So anyways, um, Dr. Cialdini, if folks want to find out more about the Cialdini Institute and your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, right now, it's to go to uh, the the website influenceatwork.com, right? Uh, and there'll be information about the Cialdini Institute. It's going to launch in uh, mid-June, and um, we're, we're, we're going to have uh, uh, some uh, opportunities before then for people to learn about it. But the best way to do go would be to go to influenceatwork.com and there'll be uh, some information there that will allow you to, to learn more about it. Well, that's fantastic. We'll make sure that we put that in the show notes. Listeners, you've had an opportunity to be with one of the true giants of thought leadership in the 20th and 21st centuries. 
And uh, it's a real privilege and an honor to have uh, had you here, Dr. Cialdini. And uh, I do hope you'll come back in the future. Uh, and um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your time I, with me. I enjoyed it, Nick uh, Good. Me too. Me too. It was a lot of fun. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or wherever you happen to listen to this episode. If you got something valuable, give us a rating, give us a like, give us a review, and share this with somebody else who could benefit from its message. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.